In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are continuing in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel. Uh, You'll remember that uh, last week we heard the Gospel lesson end with uh, this question, this rhetorical question about the second coming of Christ. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And of course, that is a rhetorical question because we know that his kingdom has been established, that his church has been established, and that it will not be removed. So he will find faith. He finds faith because he is faithful, because he is uh, standing in our midst, and we can depend upon him. The question now before us is, uh, how do we uh, get low enough? How do we humble ourselves so that we are able to Um, apply the strength that we need uh, to lift up and to be obedient and faithfulness. And Jesus is saying clearly here that if we don't humble ourselves, we won't be able to do that heavy lifting that is required in faith. That humbling uh, aspect that we see, that picture of humbling oneself before God, is very explicit in the prophets that are centered around the fall of Judah uh, to the Babylonians. So this uh, passage here from Jeremiah is in that time period, about 580 B.C. You'll remember that uh, after Solomon, he has a foolish son, Rehoboam, and the rebel Jeroboam from Ephraim enter into civil war, and the united kingdom of Israel is divided, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in around 800 is finally subsumed by the Assyrians, and they become Samaritans, That southern kingdom of Judah lasts a little bit longer, and they suffer on and on from a terrible um, conceit of pride. They think that uh, they are able to stand because of their own strength, because of their own uh, military, because of the political gambles uh, and liaisons they have made, because of the wealth that they have accumulated. And the Lord is preparing to humble them and has been warning them about this. If you don't stand on me and upon my righteousness, uh, I will humble you. If you don't humble yourself, I will humble you. And that's the message of the prophets over and over again. You remember that Jeremiah is speaking kind of at this last minute. Jeremiah is in the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians have surrounded them. The siege works have begun. They're cutting off water into the city. There is a drought in the region, and there's a real drought in the city because of these aqueducts being cut off. So we have a terrible drought and famine going on within the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding fortified cities. And then we have this regional drought that Jeremiah talks about that becomes an allegory, becomes a symbol, it becomes a figure for this drought from the grace and mercy of God. They're experiencing this real drought of rain, this cutting off of water, and they're experiencing a drought of the Holy Spirit. They're not receiving the word of God, they're not receiving his grace and his mercy. And Jeremiah is in the city reminding the people that this is the hand of the Lord that is upon them. This has nothing to do in the end with the Babylonians. They're a tool in God's hand and they need to submit themselves to these consequences. And if they would only do that, uh, then they would uh, not be uh, totally torn down as a people and the Babylonians would be a little bit more merciful as would the Lord. And of course, they treat him as a traitor. 
he uh, tells them and reminds them um, of their backsliding. And he says that uh, the hope that they have is the hope um, in God. And you'll remember that uh, the Lord's whole purpose uh, and design and creation in the building of the Garden of Eden and the creation of earth is to dwell with mankind. His desire is to dwell with us. When he builds the Garden of Eden and he sets Adam and Eve in it, he walks in the garden with him. With them. Uh, when they're in the wilderness and they build the tabernacle, the Lord uh, puts his presence in the tabernacle. He dwells within the midst of his people. When they establish Jerusalem as the kingly city, they build the temple and the Lord dwells in the temple with them. The Lord's desire is always to be a God in the midst of the people, a God to dwell with his people. And this is what Jeremiah reminds them of. He says, Lord, you are in the midst of us. We are called by your name. Do not leave us. So Jeremiah is at once recognizing the distance of God the distance of his grace and mercy, the way that his hand of protection has been lifted to allow the Babylonians to come in. And at the same time, he is a God who is imminent, a God who is near. He's dwelling in the midst of his people. And Jeremiah is reminding the people and God of both things. And indeed, this is uh, the, the work of the prophet and it's the work of the church, right? To say, Lord, we know the consequences of sin. We know what the results will be from our sinful actions. But because you are holy, because you love us, because you made a promise, not because of anything we've done or deserve, but because of your holiness and love, remain in our midst and bless us. And so this is what Jeremiah does. He says, we acknowledge our wickedness. We acknowledge the wickedness of our fathers. We have sinned against you. He says it clearly. He offers a confession on the part of the entire people. And he says, remember and do not break your covenant with us. So it's not that the people have kept their covenant. He's saying, Lord, would you keep your covenant because of your love and because of your steadfastness and faithfulness? And this should remind us again of Jesus saying, will I find faith when I come again? He will find it because the Lord establishes his covenant and he will not remove it. He says, we set our hope on you for you do all these things. You bring rain. And again, rain is a figure here. We're talking about real rain. The, the people need water, clearly. But there's this larger picture of the grace of the Holy Spirit and the dew that is a symbol for the sustaining power and life of God's Holy Spirit. So for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem in the time of Jeremiah to receive that, they're going to have to humble themselves, confess their sins, and acknowledge that it's God who is faithful and true. And of course, uh, the people forget about this. This is what people do. And so the Babylonians take them into exile. They return after 70 years, around 510 BC. They have some period where they're allowed to, under the, uh, the, um, the Persians, to uh, build the walls of Jerusalem again. They're given some uh, minor ability to reestablish temple worship. And then Alexander the Great comes in, and again the temple is defiled. And then they again reestablish worship under the Maccabees for a very small period 
when they establish a treaty with Rome. And Rome has now come in and has encamped troops in the city of Jerusalem who are defiling the city and the temple of God. And it's at this point that we see Jesus and this uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. See, through this whole time, the people of God, the nation of Israel has been desiring uh, this purity of worship. They've been desiring that their enemies be removed from them. And yet the presence of these enemies continue to persist. And chief among those would have been somebody like this tax collector in Jesus's parable, because this tax collector, it's clear, is a Jew. And yet he's collecting taxes on behalf of Rome and Herod, who are the enemies of the people of God. He's the worst kind of traitor. Tax collectors were making themselves fantastically rich. It's estimated that the tax burden on the people at this time could have been as high as 80%. Because the Romans took their cut of over 50, and then Herod would have taken his cut, and there would have been other minor officials, and then the tax collector is enriching himself. There's very little left for the people to subsist upon. And here this fellow Jew is working with these pagans, with these um, you know, filthy defilers of God's temple. And you could see how it would be very easy uh, to be a Pharisee, to be a religious Jew at this time, and to look at this tax collector with hatred and contempt. Well, I hope that it's easy for you to picture because um, it's very easy for me. Uh, it's very easy for me to go through my day and to look at the people around me and to think, boy, are they messing up, right? They're not doing their job right. They're not raising their kids right. They're not driving right. They're not working right. They're not doing anything right. How sad, how pitiful, how wonderful that I'm not like them. Right? That's what the human heart does. That's what we do. <clears throat> and it's very convenient. It's very convenient because the other option is to compare ourselves to God. If we compare ourselves to God's righteousness, then we realize how low we really are. But if we compare ourselves to other people, I might be looking pretty good. And that's the temptation that the Pharisee falls into. He gives thanks and says, at least I'm not a tax collector. At least I'm not a, a prostitute. At least I'm not a thief. Right? At least I'm not one of these poor, sad people. And then he mistakes means for ends. <clears throat> he prides himself on tithing and on fasting. Tithing and fasting are wonderful things. We will be encouraging it uh, throughout the church year. Hopefully we do encourage it on a regular basis at Jesus the Good Shepherd. Tithing and fasting are tools. But they are not the ends. They are not righteousness before God. Righteousness before God comes from a broken heart and humility, recognizing that we are sinful and that God is holy, and the tithe and the fasting are supposed to get us to that place. They're supposed to get us to a place of a broken heart. They're supposed to get us to a place of realizing, oh yeah, I depend on God, not on myself. But if we start to think about the fasting and the tithing or the worship here or the receiving of Holy Communion or the reading our Bibles as being good things in and of themselves, then we miss the entire project. 
We miss the fact that all these are simply tools meant to help our hearts be broken so that we can humble ourselves before God as this tax collector is able to do. And the prayer of the tax collector has become an ancient prayer of the church that we call the Jesus Prayer. Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the prayer of the church. That is the summary of the Christian life. And we have an example of where it will lead you, if you allow it, in the person of St. Paul, in prison. Where are the cheers? Where's the excitement? That's where that prayer will take us. Second Timothy might be the last letter that Paul writes. He's writing it in prison. He's acknowledging what it is that he's done. He's reflecting upon the life that he's lived. And he's saying, this is what it's got me. He says, my life is poured out like a drink offering. That is an incredible image. A life completely poured out. And the modern world where we say, oh, preserve it, save it, hold on to a little bit, you're going to need it, rest, take it easy, don't do too much, right? Preserve what you have. And Paul is saying that his life is poured out. A drink offering isn't just a little bit, it is upending the bottle and pouring it all out as an offering of thanksgiving to God. And he's saying that his whole life is being poured out for what reason? So that he might bring the message to the Gentiles. That is what it is that his life has been poured out for. He has been made low so that he could reach the Gentiles. So if you remember, every city that Paul goes to that we have any record of, he goes first to the Jews. He preaches in the synagogue until they really understand what he's saying, and then they beat him up, and they try to kill him, right? It's at this point that he goes to the Gentiles. He only goes to the Gentiles after the Jews have beat him up and kicked him out of town. So when we think about his message to the Gentiles, he has become as low as he can possibly be, despised by his own people, kicked out of the assembly, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, and now he's ready to proclaim the gospel message to the Gentiles who say, what happened to you? And incredibly, like Jeremiah, he's able to say, because of the sins of the world, I've been brought low, and in my lowness and humility, the Lord has met me and is using me for a purpose so that I can get down underneath this thing and lift it up which is faith. He loves to mix his metaphors, or at least to stack them one on top of another. Right? He's a drink offering. He's fought a fight. He's finished a race. Didn't win it. Just finished. Kept the faith. One example after another of what it means to persevere, to stand firm, to hold fast, to overcome, to allow oneself to be totally poured out, 
He acknowledges the abuse that he's received. He's had people leave him like Demas. He's had people fight against him like Alexander. And he doesn't dismiss any of that because his eyes are wide open like ours need to be. Because we can't afford to be naive. There will be people constantly in and out of the church that want to make us into some kind of a country club where we pat ourselves on the back and tell each other how wonderful we are. And at that point, we become exactly the opposite of what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be reminding one another to stand firm and hold fast and to allow our lives to be poured out, to be willing to undergo the hardships of proclaiming the gospel, even though it's not comfortable, it's not popular, it's not being received well, so that we can get low enough in humility that we can lift up this burden of faith and righteousness. There will be people all along the way that say, oh, that's a little messy and not very popular and not a lot of fun. And maybe we should proclaim something else or talk about something else. That temptation will always be in the church until Christ comes again. And Paul reminds them that the Lord has rescued him. He's rescued him for a purpose. He's rescued him from every evil deed and brought him to safety to his heavenly kingdom so that God's name would be glorified. We can't lift the burden of faith standing up straight and tall. We can't get underneath it. You want to lift something heavy, you've got to lift with your legs, right? You've got to bend down low. You've got to be humble. That's what we've got to do. We've got to be willing to humble ourselves so that we can get low enough that we can talk to those who are in desperate need of the message of saving grace. Those that are doing fine are going to pass by. They don't need it. It's the people who are in desperate straits that need it. The people who are willing to listen to somebody who's been beat up who need it. And we have to get low enough and humble ourselves enough so that we can be heard and so that we can lift them and ourselves with the true grace and strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. <laughs>